Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today, Dr. Bosazan interviews Professor Jorgen Randers. He's co-author of Limits to Growth, the seminal 1972 report that put the Club of Rome and climate threats on the world map. He's Professor Emeritus of Climate Strategy at the BI Norwegian Business School, where he works on climate and energy issues, scenario analysis, and system dynamics. Jorgen, it's a great pleasure to have you on our podcast. You are one of the three authors of, um, four authors, I'm sorry, of Limits to Growth, uh, the first report to the Club of Rome that put the Club of Rome on the map worldwide. So before we go into the details, what put you on the map, um, on, the, on the track of doing what you're doing, which, of course, determined the rest of your life from the very beginning? This was in 1970, when I was 25 years old. I was a physicist. I went to MIT from Norway to take a PhD in physics. And uh, I learned that all the other guys at MIT, the doctoral students were much more competent than I were, so I chose to look for something else to do. I had always been the best at the Norwegian University without any difficulty, but at MIT at the time it was difficult. So I happened to, to hear Professor Forrester give a talk. I was instantaneously converted into his systems analysis based perspective on the world. And I changed to the AP Sloan School of Management and got my PhD there instead. But uh, that took three years. Uh, the spring of 1970, when I moved from the physics department to, to MIT, was actually happened to be two or three months before Forrester met for the first time with the executive committee of the Club of Rome. Uh, they had been in existence for two years and tried to find a consultant who was willing to provide them with some kind of deep insights concerning the long-term future of the world and the demise of Western civilization. And the Forrester said yes, on the condition that the Club of Rome came to his institute at MIT for two full weeks to learn the method. And unbelievably, Aurelio Pache and his five executive committee members, you know, being senior people at the time, you know, uh, took the time to come in the summer of 1970 for two weeks to MIT. Forrester did not have a, a team of any significance, so he scraped together, you know, those people that happened to be nearby, and I was one of them. Uh, paid for by the Norwegian government, so I was free labor even. Uh, and uh, that's how it all started. So after having converted to system dynamics myself three months earlier, I was the central teaching staff with Dennis, who had just met us, who had just come back from Asia, and Dana, his wife, who had just come back from Asia. So we taught the five people from the executive committee system dynamics to Forrester's great pleasure, they agreed to get him a million dollars to do the world study. And once he had gotten the money, he gave it to Dennis and said, please run this project because Forrester is an impatient man. So he had already moved on to his next project. Uh, 
even at the start. And then the four young of us with another you know, 10 other people who were more or less involved, spent two years and wrote in the end, published The Limits to Growth in the spring of 1972. So this was pure happenstance. This is one of the lucky incidences in my life. It did change my life because I've stuck to this forever after. Beautiful. And so that ended up to become one of the most successful books that the Club of Rome or reports to the Club of Rome that uh, were published. And it sold, if I remember correctly, nine million times or around nine million, nine million nine, copies. Yeah. Yes. In, what, what? 30, in 36 languages. I think it's the number of languages, which is most interesting here. Yeah, absolutely. So can you summarize within the light of the current publication that you just uh, revealed last week, can you summarize the top tenets of limits to growth and what we, the world did understand, what didn't understand and why? So that's a good question because there is a huge difference between what the book actually said and what most people think it said. Uh, what the book actually said it presented 12 different possible futures scenarios from the year 1970 to the year 2100. Uh, six of those scenarios were sad scenarios where something went wrong, you know, in, in the world, too little food or too few resources or too much pollution. And six of the scenarios were, you know, more positive scenarios where uh, mankind uh, achieved some degree of sustainability. They solved the problems. And at the time, we said as scientists that it's impossible for us to tell which of the 12 scenarios is the most likely. We don't know enough. One does not know enough to decide. The, all we could do is then basically to say that, uh, please, world, follow the positive scenarios. Try to pursue sustainable development. What the people read was that the book said that the world is very small and that the population grow and economic growth is going to overshoot the limits of the planet very quickly, you know, within the next 30 years. We didn't say so, but that's what people read it to say. And uh, that we also forecast that oil would run out before the year 2000 and uh, that everything would go wrong. So we would get what became the famous concept overshoot of the planetary boundaries and collapse, meaning that, you know, you open the door one day and it's black outside. So that's the, the scientific message, which was not perceived at all. And this is the perceived message. And if you go in the street today and ask people what they think about the limits to growth, they would typically say there was this idiotic report to the Club of Rome published in 1972, which was proven wrong already long before the year 2000, because we did not run out of oil. And, uh, you know, when you open the door, society is still there. Right. So today you have up to this day, you've published several other books, one of which, uh, uh, you know, was uh, is 2052, uh, like 40 years after Limits to Growth, which we discussed um, during the investment turnaround, you know, mm -hmm. that we did for our investors in Berlin a couple of years ago. But last week, you actually revealed a new publication 
that is called Transformation is Feasible. And um, that is a new report that I would like for us, uh, you, for you to summarize because it's, uh, it's a hopeful outlook. It actually gives ways to humanity to find better solutions to saving ourselves because no matter what Limits to Growth said and what people believe they said, we are in dire straits. Um, climate-wise, and uh, now we have exponential tech on top of this, and uh, biotech, and so on. So can you take us through the the main messages of transformation is feasible, and also within the light of the simulations of limits to growth in which you were involved? Mm. Mm. I think in order to make the transition smooth, one needs to have an interlude where you basically ask the question, you know, what happened between 1972 and this year when we produce transformation is feasible. And basically what happened is that the world did more or less follow the, this, the middle of all those 12 uh, scenarios that were made. You know, and, and uh, it, uh, it, so what has happened over the last 50 years, nearly 50 years, is that the population has continued to grow. The world economy has con continued to grow. Resource use measured in tons per year has increased. Pollution output has increased, you know, more or less uh, business as usual for, for 40 years. And, and uh, in the 2052 book, I tried to look into the future to see what is likely to happen. And if you do the calculations, you see that the growth trends are continuing, but slowing down. The only real problem is climate emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions, the, including the CO2 emissions from the burning coal and oil and gas. So in my mind, uh, that is the real challenge at this point in time. It is the poverty that remains in the poor world and in parts of the rich world, and it is climate gas emissions. And so in transformation is feasible. We did two things. Uh, first of all, we tried to do that forward-looking calculation in more detail than we did it uh, uh, 10 years ago. Or, or, uh, and uh, just in order to make sure that, that uh, what are the you know, what type of problems are most likely to, to, to occur. And uh, we did this by trying to look at the, uh, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals that uh, the UN has established as the goalpost, uh, the ambition, so to speak. And we concluded that if you follow normal practices, those practices that are likely to be uh, followed, uh, we will not achieve the sustainable development goals, not all of them, and certainly not by 2030 and probably not even by 2050. And so what we then started looking into is whether you can solve the problem by accelerating the GDP growth rate in the economy so that you have more money to solve the problems in the traditional manner. It doesn't work. Then we try to, to see what would happen if you do accelerated institution building, you know, so that you have more force in your ability to solve these problems. 
And that didn't work. And so in the end, we asked the question, you know, what is it that works, you know, that will make the world achieve all the sustainable development goals by 2050? And that's both the social goals, like removing poverty and establishing viable societies, employment for all, uh, human rights, women's rights, etc. And the physical goals, which were, of course, the the environmental goals, which were the topic of limits to growth, you know, will we stay within the nine planetary boundaries? You know, will we uh, keep climate gas emissions down, nitrogen down, etc., etc., etc. And and uh, the answer is, uh, we spent some time, uh, you know, trying to find <laughs> what would work, and in the end, we found there are five measures that, that uh, if implemented, actually does solve the global problem uh, without collapse, you know, and and, uh, and that is first, the, the, so I'll list the five for please, you and, and talk uh, uh, a little about them afterwards, I guess. So the first one is, is to cut the use of coal, oil and gas as, you know, in a straight line from 2020 to 2050. 70% of all the greenhouse gases come from the burning of coal, oil, and gas. So if we stop using coal, oil, and gas, you know, that solves 70% of the climate problem, and that's enough to keep the temperature under plus one and a half degrees centigrade. Uh, the second uh, measure is uh, to do make agriculture and forestry more sustainable. Most of the 30% of emissions that don't come from coal, oil, and gas come from agriculture and forestry. And so we, you know, there are structural changes that needs to be done in order to make uh, agriculture and forestry less climate intensive. And that's our second advice. The third advice uh, is the question of how do you, uh, rem how do you pay for this? Uh, and uh, this does not cost very much, interestingly, to do those things, cost perhaps 2% of national income, 2% of the GDP. So it basically means shifting 2% of the population from producing dirty in a climate intensive manner to producing in a green manner. Uh, but it is, of course, more costly to do those things than the conventional thing. And consequently, it needs to be financed. And our proposal is that we tax the 10% richest people in the world uh, enough to just bring forth the 2% of national income, which is necessary. This does not amount to a huge increase in the taxes of the rich because the world is so skewed in its distribution. The fourth measure is the question of how do we remove poverty in the poor world? And uh, there we're recommending that uh, we follow the tracks of China. China is the only nation on the surface of the earth that have been able in a 40-year period to move 700 million people out of poverty into you know, the income level that existed in, in Europe in 1960, roughly. Uh, and instead of harping on the Washington consensus, you know, one should read third world countries that would like to do something should look to China instead of, of looking to the West. And the fifth uh, thing is essentially 
uh, accelerating the decline in human fertility. So slowing population growth and doing it the way that we know works well, which is to educate women, to establish good systems of maternal health, and, and to make sure that there are a contraception, there is contraception available for free everywhere so that women can decide how many children they want. And we know from experience that they all want much fewer children than, than what they get. And so that's the, the, the fifth measure. So this, this is the grausame salve, as the Germans would uh, call it. These are the five things that you need to do if you want to solve, to achieve all the sustainable development goals by 2050. And if you want basically to keep warming below plus one and a half degrees centigrade. Which sounds so easy, but actually our survivor is at stake. <laughs> you, you're very kind in presenting all these things, but uh, actually we need to get going uh, very soon. So our main audience are investors and entrepreneurs and business people who are the ones that actually should be listening to this. Yes. So what is your message to us, the uh, investors and business people and entrepreneurs, as to how we can take these four tenants and implement them in yeah. our activities, in every one of our activities. Yes. Uh, you know, being, uh, uh, I also live from my investments. So I know a little bit more about this than, than uh, most idiots. And, and uh, uh, the important thing about our five necessary measures is that most of them are not profitable, you know, from a business investment point of view, nor are they supported politically by the majority, because both are so short term that they don't see the benefits in their investment calculus of those five measures. So the, 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 the question is, you know, what should one do then? And the answer is, Totally obvious if you belong to a liberal market economy, you know, you need to educate the people, the voter, so that they pass regulations which make it profitable, most profitable to do the right thing. So the first thing investors should do is that they should know that they have to set aside part of their time to influence the frame conditions around in which they operate. And in the short term, this means, for instance, getting a carbon price in place, you know, which is a good example, but or ban fossil cars, you know, or, or uh, subsidize, you know, the windmills instead of subsidizing uh, fossil, etc. So that's the first thing. Uh, my advice to your investors is that please use one day a week, you know, to try to work on the long-term framework around in which you're operating and do it in such a way that those five things that I mentioned become the most profitable thing to do. But then what do you do in the four other days, you know, of your investor life? Then in my mind, you should, of course, look for projects that further just what I spoke, you know, that accelerates the reduction in the use of coal, oil and gas. Uh, that that 
shifts agriculture from huge monocultures, you know, towards something else. And I agree that it's not easy to find profitable things to do there. Uh, and at least, and very rarely, those things that should be done are the most profitable. But one could, you know, lower one's uh, return ambition a little bit or lower the discount rate you use in the calculation, you know, accepting that you get uh, a, a payout a few years later than you would otherwise have done. Yeah, or, this, or the other alternative would be to pay to adaptation. <laughs> so you either lower your <laughs> Your, your Sorry, but I'm, I'm, I'm ending on that. That's my yeah, okay. finish line. So wait yeah, one yeah. second with that one. Uh, uh, because the, uh, and in this category, you know, uh, when you have the pension funds, you know, it, it's from a private investor building solar panels or windmills at this point in time does not yet really give the highest return. You know, it's starting to get you know, positive. But for a pension fund who needs money 30 years into the future, you know, building windmills in the poor world at this point in time, which secures a cash flow 30 years in the future, may be much more rational than seeking the highest return on investment, giving a high discount rate. So this is the type of thing you should be doing for, let's say, the three other days of the, and then the final day of the week. You should do what in many ways has been seen as immoral, you know, and the, 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 the environmental movement has been arguing against this all along, you know, for the last 20 years. But, you know, given the fact that it is very unlikely that humanity is going to implement my five uh, recommendations, very likely we will get a worsening climate, more and more extreme weather and more and more sea level rise, etc., etc. And, of course, the demand for adaptation investments will grow, you know, so whenever there is a flood, you know, people will be more than willing to do, you know, to lift the level of the dikes in Holland, you know, it will become politically possible, you know, to, to raise taxes and then, you know, get shoulders out and lift the level in my country already, because we have these huge floods now at, at uh, in our hilly country. We are investing a lot in building much higher, taller bridges over the the, the rivers and big um, sewer pipes, you know, to take the, the flood water through the city, you know, rather than through the streets of the city. And so adaptation investments, in my mind, is going to be adaptation is going to be the growth sector of the future. It shouldn't. You know, but but that's where the money will be made. But it will so, be associated so, with pain, <laughs> and I don't want people need to think about that before. This this uh, you are absolutely right, and 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 when you start looking at what goes on in the world in those terms, adaptation terms, you see that it's a very rapidly growing sector. Look at the huge uh, Venice as we speak is 
underwater in spite of the fact that they did a huge investment in those those floodgates you know that's 20 years ago you know they tried to regulate the the river po so that it wouldn't uh, rise and then now climate has caught up and so they need to do a new round of these things in the united states in new york they're doing this enormous investment in order to avoid this high sea level you know going into the subway yet another time the hurricanes are going to hit further and further north as time goes by you know we know that that uh, investments in order to try to to reduce the damage from the hurricanes will uh, be very profitable and people will demand these things once they're the third time their house blows down. I presume even the United States is going to pass a law which says that it's illegal to build a house which is blown down by a hurricane. And so, you know, those construction companies that build real houses will get a competitive advantage over, over the others. So look for adaptation. You know, that's that's uh, over and beyond the three other days in the week where you try to look for profitable uh, opportunities to solve my five problems. Yeah. So what what kind of bad advice do you keep hearing or that you yeah, investment advice that our investors should be on on the on the outlook for? Well, it isn't bad advice because uh, I must accept the fact that even after nearly 50 years of working on sustainability issues and climate, you know, in my mind, much more than half of the population do not believe in these things. They, they think that nothing should be done. They think that the state should be as small as possible, that the state should retract from regulation, you know, leave it to the individual, leave it to the private initiative to solve these problems. And, and, uh, and so, so there is no political majority for the type of strong action which is uh, necessary. And that's, uh, and so, uh, and most conventional investors belong to that category. They basically think that the smaller the state, the lower the tax level, you know, the, the better would be the future. So I think that, uh, and, and conventional advice, of course, fits inside that worldview, you know, grab a profit opportunity when it exists, you know, and use the high discount rates that are, you know, a reflection of market discount rates uh, and uh, go on. And so, uh, so I think that advice to, to people is at least listen, you know, uh, 10% of the time to the people who are not mainstream in their advice, you know, the ones that that work for for stronger government, more regulation, you know, the, the higher taxes, in, because uh, and, and try to influence this in such a way that your pet project becomes profitable. You know, do it that way rather than, than uh, hoping that you can do this in a freely competitive society with uh, a lots of profit-hungry investors. 
But I agree. You know, if most of your friends ask for a second opinion, they will get a second opinion, which says that the organ is an idiot. He has always been an idiot. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, he reflects a view that only gets roughly 5 to 10 percent of the vote in free elections in rich countries. The Green Party in my country has 4 percent of the vote in Holland in Germany, which is probably the greenest, they pushed 10, I presume, which means that 90% of the population in Germany do not think these things are top priority. As a matter of fact, in, in the recent uh, elections in both in Bavaria and Hessen, uh, the green came in uh, close to 20. So uh, people are waking up. So that's good news, which that's, is, but, there is hope. <laughs> But we could count, you know, how many decades do you think it will take before in the United States of America, you will have 10% of the population voting for more stronger government intervention, more regulation in order to make the right things profitable, higher taxes to pay for the more expensive electric cars. You know, in my book, and I love America. I've lived there. I'm educated there. I've lived there for five years. You know, the world will be very warm before the Americans vote for a strong government. I couldn't agree more. And you can see it right now. You don't have to wait another 10, 20 years. It's already happening. And I would like to quote uh, uh, Noah Yuval Harari. He said, never un underestimate how stupid the people are. Uh, the collective. I mean, it sounds arrogant, but within this context, it's very true, and we need to wake up uh, because it is a leadership issue here at work, and we need to take lead and uh, yes. guide the people um, against their, yes. their own stupidity to serve their children, children and their grandchildren. So, and and and, and I, I like that summary very well, and and I remind your friends and listeners, you know, about. That fifth day in the week, I said you should spend on educating, you know, the people so that they are in favor of the legislation that will make the needed thing profitable. Yes, and I have a concrete own example of that. Uh, we tried to built a demand response aggregator in Germany back uh, six years ago, seven years ago. And uh, we invested in it. We really tried to influence the regulators. We kind of, you know, half failed, half succeeded, which is for a startup company, it's actually quite costly, you know, to spend one day of your time. You don't have the money, the time you need to focus on, you know, being surviving. And the return in the end, it was uh, I, it was uh, over seventy x. So it still paid off. <laughs> so That's, even for a startup, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. And the more good stories one can find, the better. My pet story is the following: Philips, uh, the um, the bulb company, in the 1980s, invented the low watt, the, the energy efficient bulb. They discovered that it was 10 times as expensive as the conventional bulb. Instead of then just giving up, because of course people were not going to pay, they went to the EU and said, why don't we cut a deal? You know, you pass legislation gradually over the next 10 years that bans the cheap, uh, old, inefficient bulbs. 
And we use those 10 years to gradually evolve the thing and get the volume so that we have the R&D money to further develop the whole thing. The EU said yes. And in 10 years, 15 years, those two big players managed to change you know, the whole lighting system in Europe from dirty uh, and cheap to clean and expensive. Brilliant. Well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. That's really important. And the name of my company was called Antelios that was later sold to Enernock and is now owned by a Norwegian company. So anyways, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's, it's hard to move uh, the needle, but it can be done, you know, once you really believe in what you're doing, that it is the right thing, which it is. Yeah. So the science is all behind it. There is no question about sure. that. Jorgen, and, you- and, the, and, the, and the important thing, you know, the only thing your listeners should remember from this thing, the necessary thing is not necessary, the most profitable thing. You know, that it's actually normally that way that what needs to be done is not profitable. And consequently, one should start to work on the framework rather than hoping that it will become profitable one day. Yes. And those of us who don't hate their children will uh, hopefully get to do the right thing. <laughs> it's just as simple, as simple as that. I mean, if you really bring it down to it. So, and there is so much capital around. And if we don't have enough, we can still print more. We've done that in the past. This is, you're absolutely right. So, Jürgen, you were so kind to give us a half an hour. We're a couple of minutes over, but I still would like to get to a, a personal question. What is it that keeps you upbeat and healthy and successful, you know, after all those years? What is your personal practice that you could share with us that uh, would help our listeners keep up? Uh, 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 I think it's, first of all, to be able to work for something I believe in. You know, normally I say that uh, to do so is important, but it requires some degree of success. You know, so happiness is to work for something you believe in with some success. I have not had much success in my life. I'm in what I really believe in. But it's no doubt that this keeps me going, you know, that I still think that this is important. Then I have done what most other people do have not in my field have not done. I'm I'm secured an income, you know, a pension so that I'm well paid, you know, in 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 in, in addition to to having this zeal so that I don't have to starve while I'm, you know, saving the world. <laughs> fighting the good cause. I think that's an important advice I give to all young people who move into the NGO community is to say that do so, but this is a long haul. So you need an income, you know, when you get 50 and 60 and 70, which is above average, you know, in order to keep you motivated. So that's the second thing. The third thing is, of course, that I'm a sportsman and outdoorsman and I love nature and I, you know, so... I spend a lot of time uh, in what I view as the most important part of the world, and that's a natural environment. I spent the decade from the year 2000 to 2010 finding the most lovely forest on the surface of the earth. I'm, I, I'm a genuine tree hugger in the sense that I love old growth, pristine forests. 
and I have traveled Siberia and Alaska and South America and the whole Schmier, you know, in order to try to find the most perfect, wonderfully old growth, untouched forest. And that gives me a lot of psychic energy to see something like that, some nature that has not been perturbed, uh, but uh, is still the wonderful way the world once was. Yes, and, and you run, uh, work out regularly, uh, yes. Mensana in corpore sano. Uh. This, is, this is true. And that, that's, of course, uh, totally obvious, and particularly at my age, you know, you need to start uh, exercising your muscles uh, in order to stay strong, otherwise they just atrophy atrophy, whatever it's called. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's the word. (laughs) So where can people go and and learn more about your work? Do you have a website? Do you tweet? Uh, Do you have a certain... I have, so we have a a website which is called www.2052.info, not .org, but .info. And that's the, the best place to go. I do not yet tweet. They can go and listen to my talks. I travel a lot and give talks. But I should start one day when I get a little less busy. I will start Mede Jorgen tweet. Yes, and, and the latest book, Transformation is Feasible, can be ordered at uh, Amazon. Yeah, that's go to www.2052.info and download it. It's there, it's there for free, so you can just take it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. For more information on Professor Renders, visit his blog at 2052.info. That's 2052.info. For more on Dr. Bosazon and how to get involved with the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com. 